Jacob is an associate professor of security studies at Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi. His weekly column on India's national security and foreign policy issues is published by The Hindu. He is also the author of two new books on India-Pakistan border, Line on Fire by Oxford University Press and Line of Control by Penguin India. Hello and welcome to the National Security Conversation. In this special edition of the NSC, we will have a panel discussion on the Indo-Pacific and the South China Sea. Indo-Pacific and the Quad or the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue among India, United States, Japan and Australia have been in the news lately and in many ways are the flavor of the season. A great deal of this new focus on the Quad and the Indo-Pacific is due to the increase in growing Chinese belligerence in the region. So today, we will be discussing these issues mainly from the perspective of Australia and New Zealand, both of whom have become increasingly wary of the Chinese interference and aggression in the region. So how do Australia and New Zealand view the Indo-Pacific and the South China Sea? And what are their interests there? How do the two countries and their strategic elites assess the Chinese behavior in the region? How is the Quad viewed in Wellington and Canberra? And how do they see India's role in the growing discourse on the Indo-Pacific as it were? To discuss these issues, I have an excellent panel today. Anne-Marie Brady is a professor at the University of Canterbury and a global fellow at the Wilson Center, United States. She's the author of several important books on China. Dr. David K.P. is an associate professor in international relations at the Victoria University in New Zealand. Dr. Ewan Graham is a senior fellow for Asia-Pacific Security at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Let me request Dr. K.P. Uh, to give his initial uh, remarks. Well, thanks very much, Hapiman. Um, it's, a, it's a real pleasure to uh, have the chance to talk to you uh, this morning in Delhi and this evening here in Wellington. Um, I apologize for a few technical difficulties in, in joining the, uh, the webinar. I'm now talking to my phone. So um, uh, if, I, if I miss anything, um, please don't hesitate to jump in and, uh, and, and ask me to clarify something. Um, I've missed the, the, the opening remarks, but what I thought I might do um, is just provide very briefly a little bit of context about how, um, first of all, let me just say it's a pleasure to be here to have the chance to share some views uh, on how New Zealand understands Indo-Pacific and, and is thinking about the South China Sea, and especially to be with, uh, with uh, good friend you and, 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 and Marie. Um, what I thought I would do is, I think the most interesting thing is to get onto the questions and the discussions, but just maybe I thought I might make a few brief remarks to sort of set the scene uh, in terms of to give some of your listeners and viewers a bit of an understanding of how New Zealand has thought about the region and about security for the last couple of decades and how I think some of that is beginning to change. And I think that the first point I would make is that I would say that until relatively recently, the idea of the Asia Pacific as the organizing concept for the region has actually been a concept and a, a structure that has actually suited New Zealand really well. Um, it's a region that includes all of our most important trading partners. Uh, it's a region of enormous economic dynamism. Um, uh, our trading, uh, two most important trading partners, of course, um, Australia and China. Now, China now our biggest export market. Um, it's been a region that has not just been economically dynamic, but it's also um, seen the evolution of an inclusive multilateral regional architecture, both in terms of um, 
security through the ASEAN institutions, the EAS, the ARF, ADMM Plus, and so on. Um, but also economically, APEC, uh, arranged around that Asia-Pacific framework, has been very important to New Zealand historically. And of course, we would have been the, co the chair of uh, and host of APEC next year were it not for COVID. And we will be hosting that as a virtual summit in New Zealand. Um, and I think that the Asia-Pacific, for much of the last sort of 20 years, has been a region in which New Zealand's been able to enjoy the opportunities of um, developing a, a, a vital economic relationship with China, while at the same time rebuilding and developing a close uh, security relationship with the United States. Uh, and for some of your listeners might not know, but obviously through to about 2010, the, re the defense relationship with the United States was... Um, some was pretty cool after the disputes of the 1980s but since the in the last 10 years that's that that relationship has developed uh, enormously and very very quickly so the, the asia pacific region i think suited new zealand pretty well but i think that the um the view of the region has changed over the last five years and has become one where um, the opportunities in the region have seemed to be balanced with a lot more risk and a lot more uncertainty. And New Zealand's thinking about the region, I think, has changed along with that and has changed, I think, in particular with the term of the current government here in Wellington since 2017. So, for example, we saw in 2018 a new defence white paper, strategic defence policy statement that was um, quite, for New Zealand, quite straightforward uh, in expressing its concerns about China's actions in the region and China's actions in the South China Sea. Uh, we've seen numerous comments from ministers uh, about the need to look at the South Pacific and see that as a region of increasing strategic competition and contestation where New Zealand and like-minded partners are increasingly losing their influence and the need to do more in, in the New Zealand language to have a, a reset uh, to do more in the South Pacific. Uh, and we've also seen, I think, a, uh, a deepening of bilateral relationships um, with what might be called Indo-Pacific partners. The New Zealand-Japan relationship has, has stepped ahead, uh, including in, in the security area. Uh, and of course, there's been a, a growing interest in deepening a relationship with India. Now, I would say that as well as that, China remains an, a vital and important economic partner. Um, but increasingly, I think the balance between opportunity and risk has changed over the last three years. Uh, and that there's a realization this is a much more complicated region and a much more challenging region. Um, and I guess I'll just, just I'll wind up with one last point. I'll just say that, um, we, and we can pick up on, on some of those concerns in, in the questions if, if, you're, if you like. But just the final point I would say is that, um, of course, New Zealand and India and Australia, one of the things that all three of us have in common is we're robust democracies. And right now uh, in New Zealand, we are just uh, less than two weeks away from a general election um, that will um, see a new government um, uh, installed. Now, um, foreign policy and defense policy and strategic issues are not issues on the campaign trail. This is an election all about, primarily about COVID uh, and about the economic challenges that that presents. But if the polls that are believed, it seems likely that the kind of government that is, uh, comes back after uh, the 17th of October will be slightly different in terms of the co composition of the coalition. Uh, now, 
the polls are one thing. We'll have to see what happens on, on the, in the actual election. But right now, the party that has held the foreign minister and the defence minister's post, New Zealand First, uh, on existing polling would be out of government. Uh, and so we might see some interesting shifts, maybe only in, in terms of um, tone and focus if there uh, is a new government in power after the 17th of October. But I'll leave it there and I'll, I'll be happy to pick up some of those themes in, in questions if people are interested. Thank you, Dr. KP. I think uh, we have a bunch of very interesting comments to uh, begin this uh, uh, panel as it were. And you mentioned about the, the strong, robust security relationship that New Zealand has with the United States and the uh, strong economic relationship that uh, it has with, uh, with, with China. Uh, is, is there a, I mean, there, there seems to be a certain amount of uh, tightrope walking in the, in the recent uh, times, as it were. Is there a, is there a fundamental dilemma that is developing um, in, in, in sort of uh, uh, New Zealand, as it were, about this sort of a uh, relationship? Uh, given the fact that there is a U.S.-China trade war going on at this point of time, and the Chinese aggression in the region is perhaps on the rise, so uh, where does that land um, 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 New Zealand as it were in sort of uh, um, balancing these two very important uh, yeah. relations, economic on the one hand and, and security on the other? Yeah, I, I mean, it's a very good question. I, as I said, I think that that for much of the last two decades, that was we were sort of able, like many countries, to have um, that, that there weren't those contradictions or those tensions and challenges. And those have become much more acute in the last three, four, five years, uh, as we've seen a more assertive China in the South China Sea, uh, around its periphery, recent actions in Hong Kong and so on. And I think um, at the same time also a more unpredictable US in, in the region. But in increasingly there are elements where um, it's becoming, uh, I think New Zealand, like lots of countries, has navigated this path um, over the last um, four or five years or so, but it's becoming increasingly difficult to do so. Um, and I, but I, apart from that, I think that also, um, you know, some of the some of the decisions are not that difficult when it comes to how you um, how you decide to align in terms of values, uh, in terms of core interests. But there are increasingly um, issues where it's 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 becoming black and white. And I think that New Zealand has been. Uh, careful to try and um, so for example if we take an issue like it, it, one, one issue that's come to the fore in the context of the US-China relations is the increasing um, uh, uh, articulation for some sort of decoupling and particularly in the tech sector so New Zealand um, like, like Australia and a number of other countries has um, dis, uh, uh, not gone ahead and used Huawei technology and its 5G network but it hasn't Framed that as a ban of Chinese technology, but rather uh, it has a, a, a vendor agnostic, a country agnostic process that's very technical. So it doesn't single out China for for uh, for criticism or to, or to say um, your your you know your technology is banned. So seeking to kind of try and uh, walk a careful line. Right. Let, let me let me sort of uh, um, I mean because you talked about five G. Let me sort of uh, ask that question again in it. In, in sort of different words, in sort of uh, talking about the 5G uh, decision, the Australian government actually expressed national security um, concerns over China's uh, telecommunications investment in Australia. Um, whereas New Zealand uh, framed it as a choice, uh, its choice as a country agnostic decision uh, made by bureaucrats, not by politicians. Uh, I think the question that we are 
um, trying to get an answer for is where, whether uh, there is a certain amount of unwillingness in Wellington to um, see China as a challenge slash threat, um, um, or do you think that is, that is overstating the point? Well, I think, I mean, um, if you look at, um, for example, the strategic defense policy statement that came out in 2018, uh, it had a section in, in the various challenges to, the re to New Zealand security interests that it talked about. It had a section talking about emerging spheres of influence and talking about the rise of uh, coercion and the willingness to use hard power uh, to challenge some important aspects of the rules-based order. And it named quite explicitly China there along with, with Russia uh, and a couple of other countries. Um, so I, I think that, um, I mean, but uh, if you look at um, more recent issues, New Zealand has um, signed up to UN, uh, a letter in the UN uh, expressing concerns about the treatment of Uyghurs in, in Xinjiang. Uh, you've seen statements that have uh, expressed concern about the extension of the national security law in Hong Kong. So all of these, I think, are, um, are pretty straightforward. Um, there's, I mean, you might say there is difference in tone in some of the statements between New Zealand and some of its, its like-minded partners, but I think that sometimes some of those claims are, are exaggerated. And I think there is, um, you know, there's some, probably some utility to New Zealand to, be, um, to um, have a slightly nuanced position. Um, where, you know, it has independent, it has its own national interests. But, um, but I don't think that, uh, I think it's been pretty clear in expressing those areas where there are, and, and the Prime Minister talked about this in a speech in July, where she said, we have a mature relationship with China now, and New Zealand uh, talks openly about those areas where we have um, some important differences. Right. Thank, thank you so much, um, Dr. KP. I'm delighted um, that we have uh, Professor Anne-Marie Brady on the panel now. I was wondering if you could um, uh, give us your insights and then we can perhaps go into the uh, question answer uh, segment. Well, I've been part of the conversation in New Zealand and our relationship with China. And I had a paper called Magic Weapons, China's Political Influence Activities under Xi Jinping, which if people are interested, they can have a look at it on the website of the Wilson Center. And that used New Zealand as a case study of the Chinese Communist Party's political influence activities or political interference, in fact, is the term which Australia's very, has, and our, my own government has made it very clear. We're talking about interference here and influence is something different. But when I wrote my paper, you know, we were, it was the early sort of stages when we are starting to talk about this and it's evidence-based based on my 30 years of research on the CCP and what they say that they intend to do, what their methods are, their approaches are for trying to shape, more than shape political opinion in different countries, actually to, um, to determine policies in, in some areas and, and to neutralise opposition. And so that's, um, that has, that paper inspired an internal conversation in New Zealand about what we were going to do about this issue. And the debate was between economic security or national security. And I think every country is grappling with this issue. Um, and um, I'm grateful that my country has come down on the side of national security, because without national security, have no economic security. But New Zealand is a small state. 
um, although we have an, an off, saying you often hear that we punch above our weight, which is a terrible cliche, um, I don't think we're going to be punching anybody in the eye on this one. So what we've been doing, as I wrote about in a, um, an article in The Diplomat that I, I recommend to you, um, that came out in July this year, is on a case-by-case -case basis, New Zealand has been looking at different aspects of our relationship with China. And I have been constantly urging um, in the, our government and in discussions um, in um, New Zealand that we should engage with China where we can, but set good boundaries. To have a healthy relationship with anyone, you have good boundaries. And those boundaries mean, for example, that we should not have interference in our political system, um, that our, our New Zealand Chinese diaspora should not, uh, that they should feel, they should not have um, the Ministry of State Security and others putting pressure on them and that they don't have freedom of speech and freedom of association in our societies. Their Chinese language media is forced to follow the Xinhua line and uh, any uh, people in the New Zealand Chinese community who speak out on issues critical of the CCP um, are put under a lot of pressure um, by various uh, proxies or, or, in fact, government um, officials as well. So those are the um, uh, examples of where we would like a healthy relationship where those kind of things wouldn't happen. But it's because these problems have been going on for such a long time, it's actually quite hard to affect change as Australia is finding, even though Australia has, is ahead of everybody in some, some quite robust laws, um, the challenge is, is to, to use those laws. And New Zealand is a democracy, so each change we make, each, each legislative change must go through a democratic process and be consulted and have buy-in from the community. Um, so New Zealand is, um, has made adjustment in its China policy. And I think the, the COVID experience has very much uh, uh, strengthened that. New Zealand uh, had, in, in March, we were being told that China would not offer, uh, give PPE to New Zealand. We had very short supply. We had about two weeks supply, our Minister of Health told us. And China was denying New Zealand access to PPE because we've closed our borders to China. So things like that have sharpened uh, thinking in New Zealand. But again, we're a small state. We work with like-minded states and we focus on what we can do, what we have control of, which is our own legislation. So that's New Zealand's process on these issues. And beyond that, in our foreign policy, our, our coalition government of the last three years have followed a very proactive foreign policy focusing on our region, the Pacific Reset. And initially, our government was cautious in the new discussion about the, um, the, the Indo-Pacific uh, discussion and whether or not where that, where that fit, fit in with our own um, policy. But I think I've observed that New Zealand is quite keen to partner with um, Australia and the US and France and the Pacific partners where, as, where we can to enhance what we are already doing. So, for example, the BOE agreement um, was, was signed during this time of this coalition government between the Pacific Island Forum states, which for the first time introduced security as part of the conversation between the Pacific Island Forum states. 
So I think there's been a steady evolution of New Zealand's thinking about these issues that reflects our history um, and our independent foreign policy and our size and our place in the world. And um, so I see it as an ongoing conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. You've made some very, very interesting, sharp comments there. Um, if I may begin with a question. In your 2017 article entitled Magic Weapons, uh, China's Political Influence Activities Under Xi Jinping, uh, you wrote that New Zealand needs to face up to some of the political differences and challenges in the New Zealand-China relationship and investigate the extent and impact of China's political influence activities in our democracy. Um, do you think the government of New Zealand has taken um, your uh, advice seriously? Oh, yes, they have. And so, as I said, that paper uh, inspired an internal conversation. And um, the result, one of the results was a one-year inquiry into uh, foreign interference um, in our political system. And that led to legislative changes. Um, there was change to political donation funding laws. And the um, Minister of Justice, Andrew Little, said that if, the, if his party was to become in government again, and the polls look like it will be, that there will be further legislation. And there was a subsequent inquiry into foreign interference in our um, local government, which uh, went on for about 10 months, and it had to conclude uh, only because the parliament has, has come to an end, but that doesn't preclude it being taken up at the next parliament. And some MPs are interested in um, an inquiry into foreign interference in our universities. Um, there've been legislative adjustments to the Overseas Investment Act, uh, particularly, which happened, interesting, under urgency in July, particularly focusing, initially they were done on foreigners purchasing New Zealand um, real estate, so uh, private real estate, homes, that sort of thing. Um, but the newest changes were about investments in strategic infrastructure. So I'm looking to you in there, since I'm thinking about the Darwin Port example, or in, in the case of New Zealand, Wellington Power, um, and so New Zealand has um, now tried to kind of, as they say, close the gate after the horse is bolted, but to try and better, uh, to get that thinking into the Overseas Investment Act, the national security considerations. And interestingly, we've seen that there's a release of documents from the, the Treasury of the, the, um, the policy discussion and the different ministries about this. And in February, there were different views between um, MFAT and SIS and, and Treasury about the extent of these restrictions in the OIA. For example, would they include med investment in the media? Well, by July, after the COVID experience, the yes, everything that was recommended was passed and accepted. So that's an example um, as I say, where I think that things that thinking concerns about the the foreign policy of the Xi government and how it's the, where it has an advocate effect on New Zealand and where we could better protect ourselves really have crystallised now. But it's case by case, and it reflects our feeling of 
our, what agency we have as a small state. And one thing we can change is our own laws, but we must do so in a democratic fashion. We must consult, we must engage. We need to hear what, you know, all the interested parties, what they have to say. And that's the process they're doing. So it may be painful to watch, but that's democracy. Let me now turn to uh, Dr. Graham. Um, Graham, if you could uh, give me um, your initial comments and then uh, let's uh, get going with a few questions and uh, discussion. Uh, well, thank you, Dr. Happyman uh, Jacob. Thank you to the CSDR um, for the invitation and to the Australia uh, New Zealand Foundation uh, as well. And nice to see my uh, friend and colleague, uh, David, on the line from, from Wellington across the, uh, the other side of the, the Tasman Sea. Um, can I just um, clarify that um, I represent the International Institute for Strategic Studies uh, in the Asia office um, I, I no longer represent the Lowy Institute, so I'd just like my to... My apologies, my apologies for that. Not at all. Um, so I will start my, my framing comments by looking at the uh, South China Sea and then uh, work my way out to the, the, the Indo-Pacific from there in an attempt to try and provide a, an Australian view. The uh, South China Sea matters to Australia both as a physical space uh, and as a normative space. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, in physical terms, um, let's begin with the economic stake. Uh, it's important for Australia because a substantial proportion of Australia's trade uh, passes through the, uh, the South China Sea, um, exports as well as imports. Now, of course, a large proportion of that uh, is composed of exports going to China, but not all of it. There is also uh, trade um, to Japan, uh, and uh, to Korea, uh, Taiwan, and other places um, composed of uh, mineral ores and, and energy. So it's important for Australia's um, prosperity, uh, and that, um, that is a part of its, um, it, its direct physical economic value. Uh, it also matters to Australia as part of um, Australia's uh, direct area of defence concern, uh, so the, the government released uh, an update um, on defence policy, a strategic update um, in July, and that underlined the importance of the South China Sea uh, to Australia. Um, it connects to the uh, approaches to Australia, uh, as, as if you like, as the, the body of water that divides China on the one hand uh, and the Indonesian archipelago uh, on the other. Um, and Australia, reflecting that, has long-standing defence ties uh, in Southeast Asia with countries that, um, that fringe the South China Sea, uh, especially with um, Malaysia uh, and Singapore through the five-power defence uh, arrangements. Um, and um, from Malaysia, uh, Australia continues to, to do surveillance over flights of the South China Sea uh, from uh, the Butterworth Air Base uh, near, near Penang. Um, but in recent years, Australia has also pursued um, linkages with, with new partners, such as um, Vietnam and the Philippines, uh, and also deploys uh, its uh, Navy and Air Force on a more distributed footing from, from those countries. Um, on a personal note, I was lucky last year to um, be an academic embedded with the Indo-Pacific Endeavour exercise uh, which uh, uh, takes an Australian naval task group, uh, which actually spent the first part of its exercise uh, in South Asia, uh, including 
um, major bilateral exercises with the Indian Navy, uh, but I joined it in Vietnam uh, and did the, the, the transit from there, which lasted three days, down to Singapore. So I had some sense of, uh, of what it's like to be um, embedded in an Australian warship undertaking um, defence diplomacy uh, in recognition of those important relationships such as Vietnam, Singapore, uh, Malaysia uh, and others. Um, and of course, uh, India is also uh, in, in important as, a, as an Australian bilateral defence partner um, and that naval to, Navy to Navy relationship has, has gone from strength to strength. Um, it's had its ups, ups and downs historically um, but um, we may hopefully uh, be on track to, to Australia um, being invited to join the Malabar exercises. Let's see if we get an announcement um, from uh, the external affairs minister, um, uh, Jai Shankar, in, uh, in Tokyo uh, later this week. Um, I also said that it, uh, the South China Sea matters as a normative space. Um, that sounds rather abstract, but um, in some ways it's the most important uh, value of the South China Sea because uh, it, it's really its value as a, as a precedent uh, for the norms it sets internationally, what Canberra likes to call the international rules-based order, uh, that if um, Australia uh, allows China essentially to, to browbeat its Southeast Asian neighbours into, into submission, um, that is going to make it more difficult for Australia uh, to maintain a favourable balance of influence and access uh, in uh, regions much closer to, uh, to it, including um, maritime Southeast Asia, the Northeast Indian Ocean, uh, and the South Pacific, as, as um, David has already uh, talked about. Um, so really, it, it matters as a, as a precedent, and that's why I think there's um, such a high political value given to it, and that explains why Australia remains um, diplomatically uh, uh, activist, active on uh, the South China Sea uh, recently posting a, a note verbal um, to the United Nations, making clear um, its reasons for not accepting China's excessive claims, together with other countries uh, in, the, uh, in the South China Sea. Um, the South China Sea, just to shift it up a gear to the Indo-Pacific, um, it naturally sits at the, the physical centre of the, of the Indo-Pacific, uh, and Australia, um, slightly to the south of it, uh, is also central uh, in geographical framing. Um, and that's, uh, you could say that that's helpful for the national ego on, on uh, one respect, because in um, historical maps, Australia is normally shunted down to the, uh, the right-hand um, corner. Um, so that there's been an adjustment of, uh, of Australia's position. But um, I think um, beyond that, the more serious point is that uh, Australia benefits from, if you like, stretching the strategic canvas from its traditional Asia-Pacific framing further west uh, in recognition of the fact that Australia's geography uh, is also bounded by the Indian Ocean uh, and that Australia has um, uh, economic and strategic ties. And India is, um, if not mentioned in the Indo-Pacific, the Indo part, I think, clearly is uh, a nod to, to India's uh, strategic importance to Australia's future in maintaining a favourable uh, balance uh, across this, this broader sub-region. And um, it should not be forgotten that Australia uh, was actually the first country to um, import the uh, language of the Indo-Pacific into its official documents through defence white papers and other statements. Uh, so although it's now become 
um, the, uh, the accepted nomenclature uh, for the United States and Japan and indeed many other countries around the region, um, Australia was, was first out of the traps on that. Um, so I think that's also, it, 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 um, it's also sets an interesting perspective between Canberra and Wellington, because as David was saying, as New Zealand has been uh, rather more reluctant to, to accept it as, uh, as its official framing. And that's also reflective of its, of its geography. Um, uh, New Zealand sits in the, in the South Pacific um, unambiguously, whereas Australia, if you like, has a, a foot on both coasts. Right. Um, um, thank you. Thank you. I think, uh, Dr. Ham, um, some very interesting points. Uh, he, here is a question for you. You mentioned um, um, exercise in Malabar, and there has been some um, reluctance on the Indian side in the past to have uh, uh, to send an invitation to um, Canberra to be a part of this exercise. Do you think uh, this um, reluctance will uh, perhaps now dissipate a little, uh, given the um, you know standoff between India and China on the line of active control? How how do you sort of see it uh, uh, from an Australian perspective? What's happening between China and India, and how it might impact uh, India's own um, risk-taking tendencies are the in the region? Well, it's taken on a, a symbolic significance because Australia has been knocking on the door now since 2017, so far with, without, without luck. Um, but I think there are two points to make. One, um, I, I do think that the Malabar um, exercise is likely to be broadened to Australia, at least in an observer capacity. Uh, and as you've, as you've said, I think correctly, uh, the context for that is, is um, uh, India is feeling the heat more directly from China and is prepared to, to lay out um, uh, <clears throat> calibrated costs for China, including uh, broader defense linkages and participation. We saw um, the landing of a, a, an American P-8 uh, at Port Blair just this week, and I think that's part of the same uh, calibrated response, uh, that uh, a nod to the United States and a nod to Australia uh, demonstrates that, um, that India um, can do things also to make life complicated for, for China, particularly in the, in the naval and maritime domain uh, as a balance to, to the, um, the direct pressure that it's feeling across the, uh, the Himalayan land frontier. But although it's symbolic, in some ways I think its relevance has been overtaken by, by facts because the two navies have already worked around uh, Malabar um, to develop Oz Index, which is the bilateral exercise, to a, a much higher level of, um, of sophistication. So the exercises that we see Australia and India already doing uh, bilaterally involving anti-submarine warfare and, and some pretty high-end uh, sensitive um, uh, naval uh, activities um, show that this is uh, a relationship that um, already has, has developed um, substantial military uh, momentum and trust. Um, uh, and I think that that is uh, the, the broad posture. We saw that reflected at the political level too, uh, with the virtual summit between Prime Minister uh, Morrison and Prime Minister Modi just a few, uh, few months ago, uh, in which they were talking about cooperation in broader fields, including rare earth metals and, uh, and, and broader economic uh, collaboration. Um, so I think um, that, that there is, a, not an identical uh, threat perception between uh, India and, and Australia um, on China or other matters. There, there never is. Um, uh, the same is true of the quadrilateral. Part of the uh, the advantage of these uh, 
multi-nation linkages is you get a different perspective, um, even if there is an, an inefficiency cost uh, built into that. Um, and I think the, the Australia-India um, relationship is, is one that um, is trending in, in a positive direction. Graham, here is an additional question. Uh, and, and, and you seem to argue in your writings that, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the United States is, uh, uh, it has been a bit risk averse um, in, the, in the region in terms of uh, uh, military deployment or military exercises in the, in the wider region. I, get, I seem to get that uh, um, uh, feeling from your, um, from your writings uh, about the US role in the region. Um, have I got that right? If so, uh, what are the implications of that for the region? Um, I, I'm not sure that I would, would frame it in those terms. I think the, uh, the point is not really that the United States' failure to, um, to be militarily present. Uh, it's really the other areas of U.S. engagement that have been lagging, uh, the political side and especially the economic side. Uh, and this gets to, I think, the, the weakness of the American pitch, uh, under the current administration. It's been uh, too narrowly focused on a, a spectrum around um, defense and security, but also uh, negatively framed in which um, it is uh, calling out China's bad behavior for understandable reasons. Um, but I think you have to have um, a coalition uh, for, not a coalition against. There has to be positive uh, inducements, especially for uh, the Southeast Asian countries, who are the ones uh, sitting in the middle of this, closest to China already, uh, and who are trying to uh, avoid making exclusive choices and also hedge their bets to their to their um, to their national interest. Uh, and to do that, you have to be able to to offer um, a positive uh, economic and political leadership, and not simply call out bad behaviour and impose. Uh, sanctions. But on the, on the military side, um, there are things that the United States could do more. Primarily, I think if there is a, um, a, a new administration in Washington uh, early next year, um, they have to realize that the United States can no longer be a, a global superpower as it was in the 1960s or, or 70s. Those days are gone. And if the priority is the Indo-Pacific, there will have to be trade-offs in other areas from Europe from the Middle East uh, and a redirection of, of uh, attention and assets uh, to reflect that because China, frankly, is a, a strategic con concern that could consume the United States attention without any other issues in the world, but the world will not give it that, um, that, uh, you know, that ability to concentrate. So it, I'm, I'm, I'm still, um, uh, I, I think the United States has a, has a great deal on its plate domestically as well as internationally, uh, and we can't expect it to fill the, the vacuum. It really, it, it brings the question down to us, to countries like New Zealand, uh, India, and Australia, to be able to do more um, together, uh, because we have to make up that balance because the United States is no longer willing or able to, to do it unilaterally. Thank you. Um, and, and here is one more question uh, for Dr. KP and um, uh, you, Dr. Graham. And, and you know, what I, what I sort of um, uh, sense from this discussion that we have had so far is that uh, there is a major difference in how New Zealand uh, views the China challenge, as it were, uh, if I may put it that way, and how um, Australia looks at the China challenge. Um, is, is it a 
is it a function of what 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 is the what is the reason behind it is it a function of national power is it a function of strategic outlook or is it a function of economic dependency on china um what explains the uh, difference um in in how um wellington views the china challenge and how canberra views the china challenge dr kp if you could take that question first um well i, I wouldn't want to overstate that i i'm i'm reminded of a uh, a really nice phrase that the australian um former official and and analyst Alan Gingell said when he compared Australia and New Zealand. He said that Australia feels strategically vulnerable but economically secure, whereas New Zealand feels economically vulnerable but strategically secure. And that partly that flows from that different sense of, uh, of the strategic geography that, that Ewan mentioned in his comments before. But I do think there are real, um, you know, I think that there are real concerns about uh, a much more contested and challenging region. And uh, that's not just in, in Southeast Asia and the South China Sea, but also closer to home uh, in the South Pacific. So um, sometimes I think that the, I mean, I think that there are different ways of approaching um, and, and sometimes it's a question of, of how concerns are raised. Um, perhaps sometimes it's a question of language or tone. I think you also, um, but, uh, but I I don't think there's a, um, I don't think there are deep underlying differences. I, I, I mean, I think, as, as I said, the strategic geography is different and, and, and Ewan made those comments really well about the, the sense that Australia feels that vulnerability around its northern approaches. But, but, um, but I wouldn't want to overstate those differences. I think there, are, there, there certainly has been a marked shift in New Zealand in the last three years uh, uh, as, as how it sees the region changing. Thank you, uh, Dr. Graham. Um, so we haven't said very much about Australia's relationship with China. I mean, you could hold an entire web event on that and uh, we could happily fill it with, with a spectrum of views. But just to try and condense that, um, Australia is interesting because its economic um, trade reliance on China is, is very pronounced, um, uh, up, up to about 40% in, in, in trade in, in goods. Uh, and services goes to China now. That's very high um, by, by the standards of any country, let alone a United States ally. Um, so there has been a, a bit of, um, a, a, bit of a, a, a standing contradiction, you could call it, between that and the growing uh, sense of, of strategic unease at China's international behavior. But I think what shifted the political climate in Australia uh, is also the debate around um, foreign interference. Now, foreign interference is also framed in country agnostic terms, but clearly China is, is uh, the, the central um, concern there. And I think if you want to pick a date, uh, I think 2017 uh, is when Australia really um, started to take uh, that much more uh, seriously under uh, Prime Minister Turnbull when he was uh, still in power and enacted legislation uh, around that um, specific threat uh, after it became clear that, um, that standing senators at the federal level uh, were in some senses compromised in their stance uh, because of the closeness of their uh, funding ties to uh, you know, people who were representing the interests of, uh, of the Chinese government. So I think there was a, a, a very pronounced uh, wake-up call, even though it's the same government uh, that, um, that elevated uh, the China-Australia relationship to a a comprehensive strategic partnership back in 2013. Uh, at the other end, now seven years later, 
It's a very different relationship, uh, one which is um, almost frosty across the board uh, with a diplomatic freeze in, in contacts. Uh, and actually, um, uh, although um, Alan Gingell's comment was, was referenced by David just now, but I don't think Australia feels economically secure in the China relationship uh, to any degree at the moment because um, China has uh, used the coercive levers of, um, of, of tariffs and, uh, and other trade barriers uh, to try and um, coerce uh, Australia's position into being um, more China-friendly, less, less US-friendly. Um, and that, I think, has, has, um, has backfired. Uh, it's still an involved, um, an ongoing process. Um, and I, I think the Australian debate has not uh, unequivocally shifted um, in a way that, uh, that you know, um, there are still pro-China voices represented um, at, at all levels. Uh, but I think the, the shift in government policy has been pronounced in the last four years. So by way of concluding remarks, I just want to mention um, that sitting in New Delhi, um, you know, right uh, in the north of the country, um, you know, Australia and uh, uh, New Zealand look very far away from Delhi, right? I mean, uh, we, we, have, we have traditionally been preoccupied uh, with a, um, a continental grand strategy, as it were, and, and really never, almost never looked seaward. Uh, you know, people always accused uh, the Indian strategies of having a certain amount of sea blindness, as it were. I think things are changing now. Uh, the, the China challenge that India is facing today um, is forcing its decision makers to uh, take a re-look at its grand strategic posturing, as it were, um, and sort of look at the uh, possibility of meeting this China, China challenge using uh, the maritime connections and maritime relationships, as it were. Uh, so as, as Dr. Graham said, this, is in, this in some ways is a gift from China. Uh, it is forcing the countries of the region, um, including um, yourselves uh, and, and India for that matter, to sort of look closely um, at uh, aligning, coming together, um, making correlations as it were, and sort of try and meet this, this, this challenge as it were. Uh, and I think this China challenge is, is serious in many ways, and as, as, many, you have, as many, you have, many of you have pointed out, um, I think the, 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 um, the reality of China's economic growth is something that we cannot really ignore. China is an economic giant, uh, also a military giant, and all, all, all of these countries have robust economic relationship with China. The point is to balance. How do you uh, uh, deal with China economically and at the same time address uh, the Chinese uh, military challenge as it were? I think that really is the is a tightrope walk uh, we have to sort of um, uh, engage in. But I can say, um, um, sitting in Delhi, that the um, uh, thinking very much is in line uh, with what we have discussed today about the um, you know, middle powers, the focus on middle powers, the focus on a normative order, rules-based international order. And I think as a, as a, as a growing country, India has every stake um, in, in some of these uh, concepts, as it were. Um, and it was, it was wonderful to uh, listen to um, experts from these two countries. Um, as I said, we, I'm sure Delhi will initiate a lot more contacts with um, um, uh, your countries and our strategic community will have a lot more conversations with you in the days ahead. Uh, but it's been wonderful, wonderful talking to all three of you, Dr. Graham, uh, Professor Anne-Marie, Dr. KP. Um, we hope to have you again at some point of time to discuss uh, these issues. And thank you, CSDR, for organizing this. Um, and all of you have a good evening um, in, in, in Australia and in, uh, 
and in new zealand thank you thank you for listening to this podcast if you like this podcast please rate and follow us for regular updates you can also follow our twitter handle nsc with hj or our facebook page national security conversations with happy mon jacob